right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. And the rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 6. And again, welcome. Great to have all of you. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. It's a joy to be with you here to celebrate the resurrection of Christ with you all. Romans. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one within reach. Turn to Romans chapter 6. We've, we've been in uh, a verse-by-verse verse study in the book of Romans. And the next verse happens to be, the next verse where we left off happens to be perfectly suited for our resurrection study. Romans chapter 6. Well, it was 87 years ago that the last Tasmanian tiger on earth died. There are no more Tasmanian tigers. The species went extinct in 1936. However, Scientists at the University of Melbourne came up with an idea. Let us resurrect the Tasmanian tiger. That's an ambitious idea. They have launched a project to undo the Tasmanian tiger's extinction. And as the headline reads, and read a few months ago, they plan to resurrect the extinct tiger. How do they plan to do it, you might ask? Well, there are some dusty, dry bones of the Tasmanian tiger happening to be hanging out somewhere, presumably in Australia or Tasmania, and they plan to extract DNA, what DNA there might be, from the bones, from the brittle bones. However, they don't have a full set of DNA. So you might be wondering, how are they going to make up for the DNA which they lack? The closest living relative to the Tasmanian tiger is actually marsupial. The Tasmanian tiger happens to be a tigress marsupial, or if you want a marsupial-like tiger. That relative is the mouse-sized marsupial called the fat-tailed dunnart. Never seen a fat-tailed dunnart. I don't think we have those in Teton County. Nevertheless, they plan to extract the DNA from the fat-tailed dunnart and, quote, edit the DNA of the Tasmanian tiger and fill in the gaps. What could possibly go wrong with that? Wasn't there a movie about something like that? I can't remember. Some have said, admittedly, this could be somewhat of a, quote, hybrid animal, and the animal could have, quote, problems. Interestingly, a similar and more ambitious project has arisen from a genetics researcher at Harvard, among others, 
to, quote, bring back the woolly mammoth in an altered form, end quote. That'll be interesting. There are lots of discussions we could have about this. Lots of perhaps bioethical implications we could discuss. But one thing it shows for sure is that the human race has a fascination with overcoming death. With reversing this great universal enemy that takes one out of one. Since the beginning of time, we've known that death is an invasive species, an intruder, an uninvited guest into our world, but we've never had the power to outdo it in and of ourselves, to overcome it. However, 2,000 years ago, that changed. He came from heaven. God incarnate, as we celebrated a couple months ago, a real body, truly human and truly God, the second person of the Trinity took on human form in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he lived the only sinless life, the only life in perfect conformity to the law, the commandments, and the requirements of God in thought, word, nature, and deed. Then, in the culmination of it all, he was beaten to a pulp. He was whipped. He was tortured. He was so beaten that the scriptures tell us he was unrecognizable. Lost catastrophic blood, nailed to a cross for our sin, and died. Christ was laid in the tomb, but on the third day, Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead. He rose physically from the dead. It was not an apparition. It was not a spirit. It was not a thought. It was not a hope. There was a physical body, a new body, a very interesting one, topic for another time, a real body, Jesus Christ, risen from the grave. He went into the grave dead, dead is dead, and came out of the grave alive, living. And he is alive today. This is not an idea. This is not a religious view shelved into the theoretical realms of subjectivism. This is absolute fact. Historical reality. Over 500 people saw him. People who didn't believe in him saw him. His enemies unsuccessfully tried to produce a body. And it hasn't been done until this day. And will never be done. Because Christ is alive. He is in heaven. And he will return bodily one day. Every eye will see it. He'll finish what he started. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says, He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection is very important. How important is it? 1 Corinthians 15, 17 tells us, if Christ has not been raised, your faith 
hopeless. You are still in your sins. And those of us who have hoped in him in this life only are of all men most to be pitied. Translation, you're a sorry bunch if you hope in him for this life only and he hasn't bodily launched out of the grave, but he has. The resurrection is so important that not a single person can go to heaven if it doesn't happen, if it hasn't happened. Not one person. Nobody. Romans 6.23, our text for this morning, is sort of like God popping the hood and showing us the intricacies, some of the details and the mechanics and the wiring of how it all works how important the resurrection is. What's the connection between the resurrection, the physical bodily resurrection of Christ, and eternal life? With that, follow along as I read then. One simple verse, Romans 6.23. Please turn there if you have not already. The last verse in Romans 6. God's word reads, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. If you haven't been with us in our study through Romans, the book of Romans is given to us a few decades after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ to explain the significance of Christ's death, his life, his death, his sinlessness, his resurrection. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, are the inerrant, factual, historical accounts of here's what happened in his life, his death, his resurrection. And then Romans is, okay, what does all that mean? What's, what's the so what? Give me the bottom line. And this verse is a distilled version of it all. Probably the most distilled, concentrated explanation of, so what of the resurrection? That's neat. What does it mean? James Montgomery Boyce has said that Romans 6.23 is one of the most familiar verses in the Bible. Charles Spurgeon said, it's a Christian proverb, a golden sentence, a divine statement of truth, worthy to be written across the sky. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, quote, it is one of the great statements of the gospel of salvation. What does it mean? The verse doesn't have the word resurrection in it. It doesn't say anything about Christ rising from the dead. So what's the connection? We'll see. For our outline, we'll see two points here. We'll see the great need for eternal life and the gracious provision of eternal life. If you want to divide up the verse in two, that's kind of one way to do it, to lay out a path for us as we travel through this heavenly text. Bad news first. There is a real tragedy universal to the human race. The verse like the rest of Scripture, doesn't shy away from it. And it's what makes the great news really, really great news. 
Number one, the great need for eternal life. Notice that phrase at the beginning of verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's about as concise of a statement as possible that faces this problem that faces the human race and has been for all time. The wages of sin is death. Now the word sin, it's not used much today, or if it is used, it's sometimes used incorrectly. It's unpopular, and it's unfamiliar. But we need to understand it to understand the resurrection and eternal life. Shying away from it is not to not going to help us. Carl Menninger, you may have heard of him. Carl Menninger was a psychiatrist. He went to Harvard, graduated from Harvard, taught at Harvard, and was a very observant individual. Towards the end of his career, he wrote a book, one of the most, probably more well-known books that he wrote, and it was published 50 years ago in 1973, and the book is called Whatever Became of Sin. Maybe you've read it. But in the book, he talks about how after years and years of practice and observation, he came to this one conclusion. He came to this conclusion and said that one of the most harmful things that has happened in our society is. How would you fill in that sentence? One of the most harmful things that has happened in society in modern society is. And he said it was this, that we've done away and ignored the idea of personal sin, that there is such a thing. Insightful. That we've ignored and we're shunning this idea that we all personally sin, that we've sort of evolved out of that. And so Menninger talked about how society has tended to purge this idea of personal responsibility. That we sin, and it's our fault when we sin, and that we actually commit sins. That instead, he said that we have, quote-unquote, evolved to things like creative blame-shifting, relabeling things from personal responsibility, and doing so has made us not the better, but the worse. Why is that? We'll get there, but one thing that's interesting, you just step back and do a thought experiment on that. Personal sin. Shunning the idea of responsibility. We don't do this when it comes to things which we do that we believe are positive and noteworthy. For example, for example, imagine a person who performs well at their job in a calendar year, and at the end of their calendar year, they have a positive review from their employer. They discover that they're going to receive a $10,000 bonus. Praises from their employer. Upon hearing that, the individual, what they do not do, what they do not say is, oh, it wasn't me who got up to my alarm every day this year. It wasn't me who worked hard, thought carefully about my work and how to perform well at the job. This wasn't me. It's somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's fault that I did so well and worked so hard. That wasn't me. 
I was socially conditioned to do that. It's not my fault that I did so well. Nobody ever says that. Why is that? That's interesting. Why don't people blame shift when they are praised for doing well? People do, as Menninger observed in his book 50 years ago, people do when someone is told that they have personally committed a thing called sin. No, it wasn't me. It was because someone made laws and forced them to. It was because they've been socially conditioned. It's because X, Y, Z, or ABC. It's an interesting phenomenon. Blame shifting and denial, not taking responsibility, are common when someone is held responsible for doing wrong that they did. But taking personal responsibility is common when we do something right. Something is amiss in the fabric of human nature. And 50 years ago, Menninger observed it before the court at the beginning of the current moral revolution we find ourselves in. Menninger rightly concluded that when psychiatrists, counselors, whoever, society defines sin as something else, remove personal responsibility and define it as an illness or a disease, something catastrophic happens. Personal guilt and responsibility are removed, which means the true hope and power for change is chucked out the window. And you're on this merry-go-round that propagates sin and forestalls change. Fact remains, sin is real. It's universal, it's personal, it's committed by morally culpable creatures, a.k.a. humans, a.k.a. all of us. We all sin. Earlier in Romans, it said all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is what you have to grasp in order to go to heaven. Not because heaven is achieved by works, but through belief in truth about the Savior and why we need to be saved. So what is sin? The Greek word, the New Testament Greek word here, it means to miss the mark. Drawn back, and you've missed it. But you missed it on purpose because someone told you to shoot left, so you shot right, or they told you to shoot right, and you shot left. Or you missed it by nature. It is to miss God's moral, spiritual mark that is good, that is right, and perfect. To cross his lines. To step on the gas where God has put moral stop signs to turn the other way where God has said morally, spiritually, go this way for your blessing and for your joy. It is self-destruction, spiritually, mentally, and beyond. It is a violation of God's standard, not just in action, but attitude. I mean, God brings, when Christ is talking about this, to very self-righteous, conservative externally moral, internally immoral people, when he's talking about this, he says, you've heard it said that the moral fences are way out where you can easily reach. But Christ in Matthew 5.21 and following all the way to Matthew 5.48 brings, shows the moral fences are actually
actually all the way into the heart, into the thoughts, so much so that in verse 21 and 22 of Matthew 5, he says, if you even hate somebody in your heart, you're guilty of murder. If you even think sexual thoughts that are impure, you've committed adultery in your heart. In verse 48, you have to be perfect. So why does God care that much? But for the same reason that when you weed your garden in the three weeks of summer that we have uh, in Teton County, that when you weed your garden, you don't just pick the leaves of the weed, you pick out the root, right? God is love. And he's a God who wants our joy and our good. So he wants to deal all the way to the root. He wants a full salvation, not a scrubbing of behavior with inner hate and hypocrisy, growing, lingering, festering, propagating. He's a good, great God. So we have all sinned. And 1 John 1 says, if we say we haven't, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth isn't in us. Whether we grow up in the church or not, we've sinned. Whether Democrat, Republican, Libertarian, undecided, we're all in one ultimate party, the party of sinners in need of salvation. So where does that put us? Verse 23 of chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. The word wages, it just means a paycheck. It means something you worked for and justly, fairly earned. So that's interesting. We have justly, fairly, by sin, earned death. There's no consequenceless living in God's universe. You throw a rock, it comes down. take a step, you move forward. But that begs the question, what does death mean here? It's, it's the broadest sense of death. The death that came in when our great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, first sinned. It has many connotations to it. All are real. First, there are about five or so aspects of this death. First, it means the death of spiritual separation from God that's talked about in Isaiah 59.2. Your sins have separated you from God. There is, as Paul says in Acts 17 to the Greeks who had never read a Bible, he says, you're kind of like guys who grope in the dark. You're separated from him. The lights are shut down. You have a darkened mind. No true knowledge of Christ, just distortion. Which is why they put up an idol that said, to the unknown God. And all, all, all their other idols. There's also death and worship and personal fulfillment. Death and worship and personal fulfillment. There's a death there that has happened because of sin. We worship things we believe will give you security, meaning, fulfillment, eternal wellness. But sin has just shattered that. I mean, look at the world. We lunge to worship things and everything except for God. That's what's chiefly broken in the human. Breaking the second commandment, idolatry. You break that one, you choose an opt emptiness unavoidably. Jeremiah 2.13 said, this kind of death is like trying to fill up a bucket with water that has holes in it. It's futile emptiness, impossible to fulfill the heart. There's the death of compounding sin, the death of the treadmill, where I try to shuffle deck chairs around on the Titanic 
making choices and there's just this one and that one and I go nowhere. It prevents peace and fulfillment. Then, of course, there's death for eternity, which is the culmination of it all. And the saddest, most tragic and real part. Jesus said in John 8, 24, he said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And he said this because he's good and loving. You'll die in your sins, and in Matthew 22, 13, you'll be cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 20, 11, 15, it's eternal. It's sin's payment. This is what sin earns. The world celebrates it. God tells us the truth about it. And every consequence in this life of sin, whether it's pain, sadness, destruction, disappointment, it's a, it's a gracious signpost of God saying, hey, heads up. There's a greater disappointment to which this leads. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. This is the tragedy. The wages of sin is death. Now, the verse takes a, an interesting and perhaps unexpected turn. Look at verse 23. It says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift or gracious gift of God is eternal life. That's sort of an unexpected turn because for symmetry, one might expect that it would say the wages of sin is death, but the wages of doing right is eternal life. The wages of being a moral person is life. It doesn't say that, though. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. Why, why doesn't it say the wages of sin is death, but the wages of being a decent person is life. Why doesn't it say that? Because God is holy. And we're tainted with imperfection, aren't we? I was visiting my sister, my brother-in-law recently, and I was talking to my brother-in-law. He's a, a very intelligent chemical engineer, and he works in the microchip business. He works in the manufacturing of microchips, and he was telling me that the new iPhones have these microchips and have these transistors on them, which is how circuits go and energy goes in your phone. The new iPhones have these transistors that are 5 nanometers wide. To put that in perspective, one of your hairs on your head is 100,000 nanometers wide. 100,000. It's five nanometers wide. That's 25. They're made out of silicon, purified silicon. That's 25 silicon atoms wide. Pretty cool. To make these things, though, requires the utmost purity, washing and purification and all sorts of stuff. And he says they measure purity not in parts per million, not in parts per billion, but in parts per trillion. One little contaminant, and the whole thing is done. And we can't do the goofy things we do on our iPhones. That's spiritually, morally why we can't get to heaven by our works, and why it does not say what the wages of doing good is life. Because we're contaminated with sin. And one sin, James 2.10, tells us if you break one part of the law, You've shattered the whole thing. And so the wages of sin is death. This is the need for a 
eternal life. But the great news is, number two, number two, we saw the great need for eternal life. Number two, the gracious provision of eternal life. Wonderful news. The joy of resurrection. This is a joyful day. No matter what's happening in your life. Praise God the verse does not end at the wages of sin is death. But, verse 23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is all stunningly simple and clear. But the most stunning thing about it all is the love of God that is bound up here. Because we buy for ourselves death through sin. And yet God says, I'm going to give you the opposite. There's great contrast in this verse. What we do, sin. What God does, give a gracious gift to any who will receive it. What sin earns, death. But what Christ has earned, eternal life. Our sin and death need not be the last say. And Christ's resurrection reminds us there's another option. The free gift of God. That word free gift. It means a gift that is graciously given. It means a gift that is given by a generous giver. Not because the recipient of the gift is so wonderful and accomplished but because the giver of the gift is so benevolent and merciful in his own person and in himself. Because he loves the glory of giving gifts to those who deserve the opposite. What can you do to earn the gift of eternal life? Nothing. You receive it. It's a gift. A gift is the opposite of something you work for and deserve. There's ever a statement that so clearly teaches that you cannot get to heaven by your works, by going on a missions trip, by good intentions, or any other thing that we could do, this is it. Gift renders salvation by reception, by faith alone. What is the free gift? Eternal life. What is eternal life? What's it talking about? It's everything that we observed about death and all its forms, it's the photonegative. Where death meant spiritual separation from God, Isaiah 59.2, it means unity with Christ. We've, we, we studied that in Romans 5. and saw the implications in Romans 6. And Jesus says in John 10.29, when you receive the gift, you're in the Father's hand and nothing can take you out. Well, what if I sin and have a bad day or a bad season? Nothing can take you out. Since the gift received wasn't received on the basis of the recipient's merit, it cannot be taken away on the basis of the recipient's lack of merit. That's a good thing. Where death meant an endless chase in life for things to satisfy, things that never give peace. You turn away from Christ, you're turning to futility and emptiness and buckets with holes in it. And the world paints a giant Cheshire cat grin and it's nothing but paint on itself. Christ says, John 6, 35, I'm the bread of life. 
you come to me, you'll never hunger or thirst again. Verse 27, in John 6, Jesus said, Don't work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Were death meant destructive choices? Perpetuating sin? Digging our heels in? I'm going to do it my way. No one's going to tell me. I'm my own Lord. Christ frees us from that. The whole chapter of Romans 6 has been about when you fall into the nail-pierced hands of Christ by faith, you're freed from sin. You're undungeoned out of sin's chains and enslaved to righteousness. And where death meant entrance into an irreversible Eternal punishment, no possibility of escape. Eternal life means death is simply a door of a very, a very, very high upgrade. Eternal joy, conscious joy, bliss, a rigorous happiness. Second Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And one day to be resurrected, as Jesus taught in John 5, 27 and following. That a body that cannot die, cannot suffer, cannot be disappointed, bored, nor sin anymore. Just thresholds of happiness forever and ever. Revelation 21.4, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll no longer be any pain, no death, no mourning, no crying. The first things have passed away. Who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want that? Why would you opt for another? Anything other than Christ will be a catastrophic and suicidal downgrade. Buckets with holes. I'm filling up water. I'm doing work. I'm filling up water. Why are my shoes wet? I'm going to still do it my own way. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus said, all who call on the name, the text says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a free gift. Why would God want to give sinners this eternal life? Why would he want to do that? Answer? It's it's super simple. Because God is love. And he delights deluge people who deserve the opposite with love. You say, how do I get this? How can I secure it? By faith. Now, something we need to just to button up here a little bit that's very important so we understand what's happening, to be reminded of this. This is where the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection are so pivotal. The end of Romans 6, 623 says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift is free for us but it was costly to him. I think many including at times cultural or political Christians are a tad confused about Christ's death. Many 
see it as like a terrible accident in history. Like a like a terrible plane crash of someone who was famous. And it's just so sad that that happened. Or like the, some see it as like the tragic, memorable death of a significant figure. Like if, like, like if Gandhi died. Or if Mother Teresa was in a, a car crash and died. And it's so sad and it kind of remains there in history. That's so sad that that happened. Some see the crucifixion that way. Uh, something unfortunate that happened to a, a nice humanitarian. Similarly, some are confused about the resurrection, even kind of have some belief in it, and some see it, again, as if like Mother Teresa had risen from the grave after a tragic plane crash, or if Gandhi had walked out of the grave uh, after he had uh, suffered at the hands of his enemies, or something like that. Uh, Wow, a a cool thing that happened, a a neat fixture in history, gives kind of a temporary wow factor that that goes no deeper than the eyes and the skin. But nothing could be further from the truth concerning the cross and the resurrection. As much as Mother Teresa and any humanitarian might have helped people, that's good. They, like the rest, are in the category of sinners in need of salvation. Therefore, their death and resurrection cannot do what Christ did. The who of Jesus is critical here who died and rose. God, Messiah, the what he is like, sinless. God-man, that makes his crucifixion and resurrection significant. If someone like Gandhi or Mother Teresa is killed by extremists, that's tragedy in history. It goes no further. But when Christ the Messiah is nailed to a cross by extremists who crucified him, it is not inert history. It is power to save, power to cleanse from sin. Power to clean the conscience. Power to wipe away guilt. Power to bring that separation from God to unity with God. And the resurrection, furthermore, again, if Gandhi or Mother Teresa had risen, that'd be cool. But it wouldn't be because of them. Again, neat history in a museum box, as it were. But Christ does. It's not inert history. It's power to grant you eternal life. Power to grant us, all who unite to him by faith, peace that we will overcome the grave and to go to heaven and stand before a holy God forever. Christ went to the cross. He had a unique role in his death as Messiah and Son of God. He goes to the cross. What was his role? The justice receiver. The wage receiver. That was his role. We racked up the wages, all of us, and we'll unite to him by faith. Christ receives those wages. Death. The punishment. The penalty is our substitute. You and I accumulate the wages for every sin, every thought that fails God's beauty and perfect holiness. Every word, every deed, every attitude. And if you struggle like I do, it's been a lot. And more than a lot. And Christ comes down and says, I am the wage receiver. Not good wages. Justice for sin. And he himself 
bore all our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we are healed. That's how it works. Well, the resurrection. So what about that? If he doesn't rise, it shows he did sin and failed as his role as Messiah, wage receiver, justice server, and cannot save. You cannot have a guy who's still dead meaningfully offer life to those who die as well. That, that, that doesn't work. Just in the same way, you wouldn't go to someone who knows nothing more about medicine than Band-Aids. You wouldn't go to them for brain surgery. I need someone who has the power to deal with it. He overcame death, and so he can grant eternal life to everyone who receives him. That's something no one else can do. Not Gandhi, not Joseph Smith, not L. Ron Hubbard, not the Pope, not Muhammad, nobody. Only Jesus Christ. Because all of those individuals died. And they didn't rise. Finally, notice the end, verse 23 again. Christ Jesus, our Lord. The free gift must be received by trusting in the right Jesus. The Jesus who is Lord. To be Lord means to be one of absolute supremacy. Absolute sovereignty, majesty, rule, glory. In hierarchy above all others. To come under him, to receive him as Lord. Jesus said in Luke 6, he said to people, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do what I say? Which shows what it means then to receive him as Lord by faith. But as we turn from our sin and say, no, I don't want the wages I've earned, Lord. I will opt to have you take them at the cross as you lovingly did. We come to him by faith, the risen Christ as Lord for obedience repentance for the most joyful happy spot in the universe to be which is knee bowing surrender and faith to Jesus Christ that's the sweet spot of life in this universe are you there are you there Jesus said in the end many will come to him and they'll even say Lord Lord I did this, and I did that. And, and he'll say to he says many in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and following, he'll say, I, I didn't even know you, you who were doers of lawlessness, who said one thing with your mouth, but did another with your heart and your life. So there is a, a sobering checkpoint there. God offers the greatest gift a person could ever receive, eternal life. You fall in faith on Jesus Christ. And all of us needs to fall in faith on him. 
bow in trust to receive the gift. Not just our Sunday morning bowing, but our life bowing. Jesus walked out of that grave, friends, after having died. Unspeakable joy. Who are you going to hope in as you walk out of here, as you lay your head on the pillow tonight? Where is your trust? Where is your faith? Where is your hope? There's nothing in this world, in this culture, and that should be obvious, right? That can offer you your greatest need, forgiveness of sins, reconciliation to God, a new heart, eternal life, safe passage out of this life. Nothing in this world can offer that. Nothing that we hope in, futilely speaking. Christ alone. Why would we hope in anything else? Why would we throw anchor in anyone else, much less ourselves? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. All who believe in me will live even if they die. Jesus said in John chapter 14, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself so that where I am going, you can be there with me. In Acts 4, chapter 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no under, no under name under heaven by which we must be saved. Who will you trust in today? This Easter Sunday, Easter is such a great time to be saved and turn from futility and death and sin and to make the most important decision of your life and fall down in faith before the loving Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, thank you that Christ is risen from the dead. Thank you. What real hope. Though we are shook at times, though we waver at times, though we struggle often, there is this unwavering, unshakable, unthreatened hope, and it is Christ. The cross upon which he no longer hangs, the grave in which he no longer lies, but the throne of heaven which he occupies. Thank you, Lord Jesus. That though the wages of sin are death, the free gift is eternal life in you. May all of us put faith in you. Go forward this week and beyond. And the joy and the stability and the peace and the rest of having received your eternal life. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.